Greetings, troubled listeners. Welcome back to the Troubled Men Podcast. I am Renee Coman, sitting in my safe house on the line with my co-host, the original troubled man for troubled times and future mayor of New Orleans, Mr. Manny Chevrolet. Welcome, Manny. Hey, buddy. What's up? Not too much, man. I, you know, you were you were giving me some uh, some news flashes a few days ago that you were a little bit under the weather. I wasn't sure if you were just joshing me or uh, or what. But but why now I'm would I care about my health? Well, I I never know. Yeah. You know, you always keep me on my toes, Manny. So I I know better than to you know I I I, I believed you at first, and then yeah. uh, I wasn't sure what to think. But so so you've been. Uh, you said you had a stiff neck and you had a swollen. I throat. woke up. Friday morning, last Friday, I woke up with a stiff neck, and I mm. just thought it was a stiff neck. Mm-hmm. And then, as Friday went along into Saturday, it became a little bit more serious. It was my throat started to swell up, and my neck, and I couldn't move. I couldn't move my head either in any direction. Mm. So of course, it's a Saturday. And I called our doctor. Right, the staff physician. To see maybe he'd return our call. Mm-hmm. And, of course, his partner his in the business was the one taking calls that day. And uh, the operator said that she would relay the message. And she did. And then she called back. I never actually got to talk to our doctor's partner. He just said it sounds like a sinus infection. Hmm. Uh, uh, so take all these, go get some over-the-counter drugs, which my wife did for me. And if uh, if it doesn't get better by Monday, you know, call our doctor. So it didn't get better. It was it it it, it didn't get better at all. Hmm. And then Monday, I called our doctor. And uh, left a message with his sec, you know, his nurse. Right at eight thirty, when his office opens, I call him at eight thirty, and I didn't hear anything until eleven thirty. And I called again at eleven thirty, and then I didn't hear anything until two thirty. So I called oh, again at two thirty, and then, um, I at five thirty, <laughs> he finally called back. So oh. I had I wait I could have you know because they told me over the weekend that the over the counter stuff doesn't work. We'll get you on some antibodies, you know. Antibiotics, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But so it took him till five thirty Monday. When if he would if I would he would have just called me back at eight thirty, I could have started the antibodies. Right, uh, yeah, right, right. I would have given you the whole days. Uh, right. Being on the, so I didn't get yeah. to start the antibodies until antibodies. Tuesday, <laughs> <Okay>. until Tuesday. <laughs> Okay. Until Tuesday. Uh-huh. And I was so upset with him that he's no longer my doctor. I fired him. Really? As my doctor. Yeah. Wow. I, I was in pain so much. I said, you oh, know what? Man. You know, it takes two minutes to call somebody back. I know you're Holy busy. Cow. I know we're dealing with all this stuff. So, uh, you know, everything going on in the world today. And I know you're busy. But you, can't you take, even during your lunch hour, I'm sure he's taking a lunch hour. Right. Yeah, you take well, a few minutes out of your lunch hour to give me a call. I mean, I, I, I'm a friend. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. We have a long-standing relationship. That's yeah. why you have a staff physician. So you, right. it's not like you're just coming in off the street. You know, when right. you need service, you need you need some uh, some responsive, some concierge care. Um, right. So, well, let me ask you. So the so the the, uh, the antibodies, as you call them, have they been uh, uh, making you feel any better? Uh, yeah, the swelling in my throat is gone. Uh, there is movement in my head. Um, um, that's good. Holy and, cow. Uh, yeah. And, uh, the one good thing that I had going for me is that I had some, uh, 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 uh what are those, uh, the, cause no, uh, the, oh. uh, I had some Oxycontin that he had uh, prescribed me like a year ago. Okay. I still had a few Oxycontins left. Did that help? Yeah, that helped a lot. Uh, okay. <laughs> it, it helped a lot. It helped me sleep comfortably. Okay. All right. You know? Well, it's important to get your rest yeah. when you're feeling and, bad and like that. Thank goodness we have a, a, a mattress that can recline because mm-hmm. the only f- way I felt comfortable was uh, totally upright. Kind of oh. like, like how... Uh, like a hospital bed? Well, yeah. Well, totally upright, kind of like how the elephant man used to sleep. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I remember that's, that. Yeah, that's how I felt comfortable, but uh-huh. it's getting it's getting better, uh, and uh, um, so I, I uh, I'm all right. You know, I'm still in bed. I, Jeez, I, man. Well, yeah. I'm so sorry to hear that that uh, you know you're losing this relationship over you know that that. It's tough, man. I think everybody is so stressed out right now. You know, we th- we thought it was it was tough. Everybody was was uh, you know ready to to get back, I guess. And then now we know we're going back down for another, you know, close close uh, you know shutdown. And uh, man, I, I've I've seen a lot of people operating like uh, you know under the at the brink of of falling apart this week. You know, people dropping balls that they normally wouldn't have dropped and. You know, some other people just coming to coming totally unglued. So, so that's a like shame. who? Oh, I don't know. Just just different. You know, different people. I'm I'm seeing as I as I go through my days. You know, it's uh, I can I can feel it. You know, I can feel it in the air. I don't know. So it's I guess that you know doctors certainly they've been he I wonder what he's been uh, well my my question I wanted to get back to about the doctor so he didn't feel like a COVID test was warranted with your symptoms uh, no he did ask me questions because of COVID uh-huh. he, he had to ask me see I didn't have any kind of fever I didn't have any kind of nausea or uh, um, um, didn't lose your sense of taste or smell uh, well you know what. I did because of the over-the-counter meds that his partner uh, uh, prescribed over the weekend. He says, take hmm. these, and if they don't work by Monday, then call, call our doctor. Right. Now, of course, you know, I fired him, but it doesn't mean he's really fired. Okay, it's like uh, like uh, that show Bewitched where the guy would get, Darren would get fired every week <laughs> and um, then rehired. <laughs> I guess, um, but it's, you know, because if I really wanted to fire him, that means I have to find a new doctor. That means I have to get, like, all of my files sent over to the new yeah. doctor. And I have to research a new doctor. All yeah, that he, kind of stuff. he's a good one, man. He really is. I, I, if I, I were to get a new doctor, I think I'd go for a female doctor. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, why not? Huh, I, would lo- I don't I'd know. Lo- you don't- I'd love you- to, uh, uh, you know... 
you know, look left and cough in front of a female doctor as a really doctor. <laughs> okay. You know, or yeah, like I might, uh, I might, I might like feel a little bit more. I'd like to spread them, you know, for the prostate okay. cancer for a female well, doctor every once in a well, while. I don't you know. know. I don't know. You I know. might feel a little self conscious. You know, I'd love her to to tap my uh, chest and you know tell me to breathe deep. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and I could get the picture. I've yeah. I've had a uh, I've had an examination. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so you, have you been watching a lot of television, Manny? Because not really, it. because uh, I've been stuck in our bedroom. Uh, ah. and we don't have a TV in our bedroom. Hmm. And but you, my, my can, phone, my phone, you know, sucks. It's not a very good phone. So I really right. don't, I don't get internet with my phone. Huh? What uh, about your laptop? Can you watch Netflix on your laptop? Uh, I'm sure I could figure it out. Someone could figure it out for me, but I can't. Because I got a great Netflix uh, pick for you. Oh yeah, um, what's that? Yes, it's. I'm sure you're as a as a, a person of Mexican background. I'm sure you're familiar with the great uh, uh, Walter Mercado. Never heard of the the TV psychic. Uh, the not not psychic. He was a he was an astrologer. Um, he was big. He was Puerto Rican. He was big all through the nineties. Of well, course, you said you said Mexican. Now you say he's Puerto Rican. No, as uh, you as a as a Mexican as a uh, as a as a. Uh, no, um, I don't know anything Puerto Rican, man. Okay, well, he was big throughout the entire uh, Latin world. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the nineties, he was a huge star. Anyway, it's a, a great documentary on on uh, the amazing Walter Mercado. And uh, I, I can't believe you're not familiar with him. Your what grandma. Kind of, didn't... What kind of Hispanic name is Walter? I don't know. He was. I don't know. I don't know. That's, he, he was. He was definitely Puerto Rican. Um, yeah. Well, I love all people except Dominicans. I hate the Dominicans. Uh, I've heard you say that before. Um, yeah, I'm not sure yeah. what, what's what's at the root of that. Oh, but, uh, they just think they're so much better than the Haitians. The Haitians, yeah, right? Right. I know. Yeah, I know. Everybody. They have a little bit more of that island, and they think they're better than the Haitians. Well, you know? that's a that's a characteristic that people the world over uh, seem to exhibit. You know, if you just everyone's looking for a way to differentiate themselves and look down on somebody else, it's tough. It's tough, Manny. Yeah. So, what's been going on with you? Um, what's been going on with me? Uh, well, you know, watch catching up on that show. I saw the, you know, the, the other show that you were been mentioning, Judy, it finally came on television. I got to, got to check the movie, that one out. The movie, the movie Judy? Judy. Yes. Yes. And it Judy is, Garland. it is you. It's all you. I, I loved it. I have to say, I loved it. You know, it's, uh, Renee Zellweger is really trying her best to, uh, you know, do those kind of, uh, But didn't it remind you of you? Well, I mean, it seems like a movie that I would like, yes. <laughs> I'm not but sure. But I mean, it, it, everything pointed to Renee when I watched it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, okay, sure. Yeah, no, I liked the movie. It was, it was good. Um, did, your fa- did you watch it with your family? Uh, uh, yes, yes. And the, they co- all co- said, Dad, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> well, they could see why I would like it, you know, yeah. Um, now, last night I actually screened uh, Cabaret, kind of along those lines, you know, as a through, through line there. And that's, that's uh, Liza Minnelli doing her best uh, Judy Garland imitation. Right, and, yeah, well, that's, uh, that's Bob Fosse, yes. yes. It's, a, it's a good film. I, I didn't, yes. um, looking back on it when, it, when it came out, it was so, such a huge hit and everyone loved it. And uh, I saw it back in the 70s. And I was a little too young, I think, to really get everything about it. And I've watched it over the years. 
and I still don't get the popularity of that film. I mean, yeah. it's pretty good. It's pretty good, but it's not great. I think Bob Fosse has done much better work than that. Um, but anyway, yeah. But it is what it is. It won some awards, you know, which is all, which is, what it is all about in Hollywood. It's winning awards, you know, getting you know, patting yourself on the back and stuff like that, you know. But listen, uh, there's craziness going on in the world. Hmm. Uh, okay. Oh uh, yeah, you you could say that again. Yeah, the uh, the, the the COVID is uh, back, and it's better than ever. The COVID, <laughs> oh, brother, is it? <laughs> you know. But um, new and improved. Uh, yes, but I, I have been able to see the news on on in my bedroom on on the on the on the laptop and stuff, and I, I just don't understand why wearing a mask is that such big a deal? Is that such a burden on someone to wear a mask? You know. Yes, I I understand. It's it's uh, it it seems to have become a political issue. Yeah, but I mean, would you think that people like in New Orleans would love wearing masks because we're all about uh, dressing up and, and, and stuff like that? Right. And, and wouldn't you think uh, criminals would love wearing a mask? Sure. You know, criminals would love wearing a mask. And I would think ugly people would like wearing a mask. <laughs> yes. You know, and people with acne, right. they would love wearing a mask. And I love wearing the mask because I can you know, uh, say things under my breath, but, you know, they don't hear it because I'm wearing a mask. They, they can't read people. your lips. They can't read my lips. And, and uh, uh, so I, I just thought it's become a political thing. And uh, I have no idea why it's so political. It's just like, hey, wear a mask. What's the big deal? You know, uh, you want to save lives? You want to save your life? Wear a mask. You know, or do us a favor. Just don't go outside then if you're not going to wear a mask. Sure. You know? You're ugly enough already. Stay indoors. <laughs> you know? Yes. yes. <laughs> you know, uh, but it's, it's come to the point where I, I was actually, you know, the past week, I've seen all the stuff that's going on uh, uh, with the COVID and the protests and the violence and our president who, uh, who basically doesn't give a shit. He's uh uh, he, he's a racist. He's a he's a con artist. Um, what I what it comes down to to me is uh, I I don't think uh, any life matters anymore. No lives matter. You know, <laughs> going totally nihilistic here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like eh, nobody you know, who cares. Yeah, you know, it's like you know going to a deli and sending the soup back. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. That doesn't matter, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, I had a friend of mine, uh, Pete Rugolo's son. We've talked okay. about him before. Yeah, 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 Pete yeah. Rugolo, great name. Famous Pete Rugolo. I, mm -hmm. I, I went to school and I, I knew his son, Tony. Um, right, right. Uh, back in L.A., Tony Rugolo, who was a real character. But um, he was uh, very thrifty, kind of cheap, kind of like you. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, he would always like, we'd go out to eat, like say we'd go to a deli and he'd order a soup and sandwich or something like that. Uh -huh. and, and halfway through his soup, he would put ice cubes in it and tell the waitress, this soup is cold. Can I get another bowl? And uh -huh. he, would always, he would always get another bowl. Yeah. Uh -huh. No, you see, I would never do that. Man. That's, <laughs> that's like, you know, that's, that's, uh, you know, somebody be, being, uh, Chancy, you know, I'm, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that's uh, it's, it's larcenous, you know, well, I, I do like the, uh, a hint of larceny, but I, I wouldn't engage in that, especially with those kind of small business people, you know, 
Yeah. Um, well, we were like when we were on tour, he would do that just to, to get more food because everyone was on an allowance kind of right, thing. Right, right, right. A meal, a meal allowance and stuff. Sure. And he was a big guy and he liked to eat. Right. And, well, you uh, think about what is a, a little another bowl of soup really cost him? It's pennies at that point. So why not? You know, they're just going to throw it out anyhow. You know, let, let the boy have some more soup for Christ's sake. Exactly. Well, that's what that's what that was his whole logic is like. Right. They're not going to they're not going to yeah. complain that I want some more soup. Yeah. No, he's right. He's right. That's a good move. They, could, they good would move. probably complain if he wanted another sandwich. Sure. Sure. You know? Yeah. Because they're counting those. Right, yeah, but he used to also like pretend to have heart attacks so he wouldn't have to pay for a meal. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. So anyway, uh go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I I was going to say, well, the one other thing, if you've been watching some TV, have you seen these television commercials where it's it's like a person, uh, like, getting it's a couple together and suddenly the man looks real nervous and like jumps onto the table at a restaurant and they say uh uh you wouldn't accept it from him don't accept it from them and they show your dog and cat you know and so the product is for this plug-in you know you plug it into the wall it's like an aerosol sedative for your dog or your cat have you seen I, this? I have not seen that. I don't know what channel you're watching, but I have. No, not. it's so, it's on. So a family member goes under the table. Right. It's like they they. It's the the design of the commercial is is this is a human behavior behaving like taking a fork and digging into the sofa and scratching the sofa arm over and over, and the the woman's going, "Stop it! Stop it!" And they're she, they're saying you wouldn't accept it from your husband. Don't accept it from your pet, so or your dog. You know, gets nervous. Oh, so the, so okay. the, solu- the solution to this, the product they're selling is, I guess, there's one for dogs and one for cats. But uh, I think just put them all in through the house, man. Get them for everybody. You know, if you have one for <laughs> for, for people, fucking plug that in there too. You know, just like let's uh, aerosolize whatever. Well, you know, you know what fentanyl I used to, derivative they got there. When I used to smoke a lot of crack, I would uh-huh. take a fork into the sofa. <laughs> right, you know? that's that's what yeah. I was thinking of watching this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, and pretty also funny commercial. a good trick for crack addicts is if you have a cottage cheese ceiling, is to scrape the ceiling and all the little bits come on the floor, and they say, "Oh, there's a piece." There's a rock. There's a rock. There's a rock. That was always a good joke we pulled on crack addicts. Okay. All right. You got to amuse yourself there. So, Nation, if you have a cottage cheese ceiling, you know, do it to a crack addict. It's 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 a lot of fun. Okay. There you go. T- tips to um, tips to the home audience. Oh, right, have, we're twenty yeah, minutes into this show. Maybe we should yes. get our guest on because he's yes, exciting yes. to me. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. he's led an exciting life. He's, uh, you know, there's a few people that have seen the the kind of breadth of the the, the music community and, and popular culture that our guest has. He uh, originally comes from Bloomington, uh, Indiana, and uh, actually wound up uh, having a, a publishing deal way back in uh, in uh, 1966. He's a he's a musician, producer, composer, arranger, engineer, studio owner. And as you like to say, a handyman around the house. Yeah. Uh, with, so without further ado, Mr. Mark Bingham. Welcome, Mark. Hello, hello. Move. Okay, hey, we Mark. like that kind of enthusiasm. Yeah. I'm <laughs> enthusiastic, man. You know, it's like I was, uh, 
I was trying to get Manny's doctor on the phone while you guys were talking. <laughs> <laughs> did you have any better luck than he did? Well, you know, once he said Oxycontin, then I was all over it. <laughs> <laughs> My doctor won't even give me a Xanax. You know, it's like, Jesus. Yeah. Oh, well, well, he, you he knows you your history. Yeah, well, maybe that, yeah, but you need a new doctor, well, man. I That's have, true, too. I have women doctors usually, and, and I've found them better. At one point in my uh, illustrious uh, recording career, I would record medical conventions. And so hmm. you'd have the head of John Hopkins, the head of Mayo Clinic, the head of whatever, heart, you know, wherever there's a fancy med school, and their men would come in and they'd talk about things. They'd sit around a table at the studio and talk and I'd record them. And then one point a group of all women came in. Okay, I'd say I'd done 10 all men sessions over the years. They never said a word to me. They never looked at me. I was the help. The women were right. like really like normal human beings. And after that, hmm. I never went back to any male doctors. And the women doctors said, well, we need the surgeons. They're like the peacocks. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so the empathy. The women had a sense of empathy and care. Yeah, you're, yes. or just like yeah, like everyone else except for male doctors, apparently. So. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I find that you know I find that kind of curious because, um, like, I work at the big campus here in New Orleans, and I work in textbooks, and every time I have to deal with the athletic department. Are the athletes, the male athletes, are just kind of like the doctor, the male doctors you uh, described, where the female athletes are really, really open and they want to talk. They want to know what you're talking about. They're really interested in what you're saying. Right. You know, it, it's it's really funny. So maybe it, it's in it's in all things, male, female. It could be in, in the corporate world or. In the medical world, the athletic world, but I found that the, the women are nicer. Athlete, they're they're better people. And yes. the the, co the, <laughs> yeah. the COVID world. Go look look at all the countries run by women versus all the countries run by men, and it, you'll you'll yeah. be surprised because, gee, all the countries run by women have handled this thing very well. Yeah, so I guess well, look it's at get that. rid of all the men is the deal. Yeah. Well, that 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 could be you know why not you yeah. know. I'd be more than happy because I've said this since I was a young man. I've said women are smarter. They've always been smarter. I've said this for 30, 40 years now. They women smell are better smarter. too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They smell better too. <laughs> and I don't mind them putting on gloves in the examining room. <laughs> okay. <you know>? Sure. Sure. <laughs> so anyway, let's get back to our guest. So Mark, you, you have a historic uh, uh, career. So you, in 1960, how old are you? 71. You're 71 years old. So in Man, 1966, nice. you break it into the music business. How did you break in? How did I break in? Well, you know, actually. You're from, you're from Indiana. Well, right? I was in New York by this point. I had moved mm -hmm. to New York when I was 13. So, well, oh, okay. but it's funny. because You ran away to New York or you went with a family? No, my family moved there. But, okay. uh we did play, I had a band and we played at another high school and they did accuse us of breaking into the equipment locker and stealing microphones, but uh -huh. we didn't do okay. it. At least I didn't okay. think we did it. So I allowed them to cut. The police came to my house and looked at all my shit. And it turns out the fucking guitar player had taken it 
and stole uh, some microphones, and he had them in the back of my amp. And the cops, uh-huh. the cops never looked. So about three weeks later, I look at my amp and I go, "What the hell? There's two Sure Fifty Sevens or Unidines, whatever they were called in the '60s." And the right. guy was like, "Yeah, well, I didn't love and I was like, Jesus, you know." Anyway, that was the end of that band, you know. Yeah. But yeah, that band. I think we had a band. I wrote songs. People liked the songs, so then the they took me to the record label. Record label said, "That's good." Uh, we like the weird shit you're doing. And then they said, here's, uh, yeah, here's money. And now you're one of us. So that was. So how old were you? You're like a high 17, 18. Yeah. Wow. So what kind of music was it? Was it psychedelic? Yeah. Psychedelic. Weird. I had a friend who had uh, a lot of tape recorders. His father worked okay. for RCA. And so we set up the tape recorders and make, we were making loops. I mean, right. we heard, you know, we, huh. cause there were. Really? You know, we heard about all this stuff. The Beatles, what year is Revolver? You know, it's like we knew this stuff was going on and we sort of figured out. And then we'd record from one tape recorder to the other, play it back on one, play it back to another. It was that kind of thing. So I made all these crazy things and the label loved that. Then, of course, as soon as, and Renee will know what this means, as soon as I got with the label, they were going, okay. We love that, but now write boy girl songs, me you songs, yeah, and yeah. Like John Phillips. And I'm like, well, what about all that stuff you like? Ah, you know. So that was, <laughs> we can't sell that. Yeah, that was like my introduction to like what? Why, okay. Why would you even so sign were, me up? You know. So they're giving you money to write songs that they're never going to uh, put on the air, or right? Produce. Exactly. And they want you to write mom and papa songs. Right. Or kind of, yeah. and I wrote a few things that, you know, uh, but it was like, I didn't get it, but they gave me a job as an apprentice producer. And that's how I learned how to do what I've been doing for the last 50 years. I and mean, basically I got to see the really cool people in New York and Los Angeles making records and what they actually did. When I started out, I was, right. it was four track. Yeah. And you'd have to record wow. the guitar, bass, drums, and keyboards onto mono. Mm-hmm. And then you'd add horns, maybe, or percussion, or whatever. And then you'd add lead guitar. Then you'd bounce all of that to the fourth track. Then you'd go back and do vocal, do a vocal. Then you'd do background. You know, So you're constantly right. bouncing things around. So what I learned was to commit to sounds which is the yeah. opposite of today, which is let's do 400 tracks and we'll pick it later. And then we'll, and it's like, right, right. But, Decisions are your friends. Yeah, so you make, you're talking about. Yeah, so you move forward. And I know like Mac Rebenack, same way he would always work. It was like when it's when the intro's right, the song, the verses are right, the chorus is right, it's in tune, it's in time, it's done. Let's move on. Right. And, right. Well, so, you know. so who are some of these cool people in New York and L.A. that you were, you know, you're a young kid that were basically, you know, you're working for? Well, the, the coolest guy in New York was not necessarily a producer and engineer. He was a PR guy named Danny Fields. Yes, Ooh. Danny Fields. And, Talk about him. And Danny Fields was just a super nice guy in a situation that was full of people covering their asses you know like the showbiz world is always full of people that are they'll be nice to you if you could do something for them maybe or maybe everyone's just really insecure so they put up barriers but i was like 
a kid and I wasn't even hip. I was a freaking distance runner and a and I, you know I I had no business being there. And Danny Fields was very not kind and compassionate. And then in the Los Angeles and there was a mastering guy named Ray Haggerty that I worked that I checked out and Ray Haggerty had his set up in a hotel room and he did a lot of great mastering and I learned what that was, you know, lathe. Okay. And then when I I moved on, they signed me up. I went to college for one semester and then went out to Los Angeles and worked for Electra out there. And there was like Bruce Botnick was a great engineer. Uh, this right. guy, Paul, Roth, Paul Rothschild made great records. Uh, Wasn't Botnick with the doors? Yeah. 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 Okay. Botnick. Yeah. And so I got to see Botnick do a lot of stuff. And I got to be a flunky fly in the wall gopher for a lot of different sessions. And so I, it, and that was like, you know, it's priceless. You can't, you know, just, and uh, I got to get coffee for a lot of people. Got to yeah. move, move a lot of microphones. Got to pick up people at the airport. Got to, you know, I did a lot of stuff. But I lit. So, what were the bands beside the Doors? Oh, doing Judy Collins, Judy Collins, Rhinoceros disappeared into the face of the uh, Burrito Brothers. I was around a bit. Oh, okay. cool. I had Thanksgiving '68 at the Whiskey with the Burrito Brothers. Sneaky Pete wore a chicken suit. Can't make this shit up. <laughs> <laughs> nice man and i was buddies with chris etheridge and we played together some he was the bass player in that band i didn't so how was thanksgiving at the whiskey you yeah said? well you know we're eating thanksgiving in the dressing room at the whiskey That's oh, okay like so a joke was it I mean, the, yeah. the full yeah okay so the full there was no turkey yeah and yeah stuff. oh there yeah, was yeah oh okay <laughs> it wasn't like you know it was in fuck you know well in uh backstage at the whiskey is to me, was was one of the most filthiest places ever to be in all of Los Angeles. I don't know how it was in the sixties. I don't remember how fi- that it was <laughs> that filthy. I mean, of course, the filthiest place ever on the planet Earth was the CBGB's bathroom. Of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and you were there in the seventies. You were in New York, and yeah, the, and yeah, so and. and uh, because I know you've given me like uh, live recordings that you made of suicide and, right. and uh, you were there for that. So, so how'd you get there from Los Angeles? Oh, sorry. well, Los Angeles was a weird thing. I, I had this, uh, I lived in this house with different musicians and producers and, and people would fall. I mean, it would be typical to wake up and see David Crosby sitting on the floor naked with, smoking hash with two girl, beautiful girls who are also naked, you know. Yeah. And, you know, that was that, it was literally like that. And Joni Mitchell lived down the street. Uh, Eric Burden lived down the street. There was a scene going on. And so you were living up in the hills. I lived in, so, right? I lived in, I lived in Silver Lake when I first got there. I had a shitty apartment on Poinsettia between uh, sure. Santa Monica and Formosa. I had a, uh, I, it's still there. I'm yeah, sure I'm, sure, I'm sure it's still there. <laughs> I lived in Beechwood Canyon in Stan Kenton's old house at one point. When the wow. I know exactly what you're talking up, about. I know up exactly the hill. that house. Uh-huh. And uh, anyway, it was beautiful. It was the one of the main engineer guy for Electra was this amazing old queen named Alan Emig, and he uh, he he was could he built the first consoles at Columbia and Capitol. I mean, he was wow, a genius, really? but he was a 
what do you call those things, barbiturate addict that drank all day. So when he used the soldering iron, it, it kind of looked like he was, you know. <laughs> but he somehow he worked out. But he let the young uh, guys that were didn't have a place at the moment stay up at his house. And, That's you know, nice. you paid the price at times for him chasing you around. Sure. Anyway, yeah. so I went to a party via this with Crosby at one point, And Crosby ditched me. And I'm at this party. I realized it's an all-gay party. So the, anyway, long story <laughs> short, the guy who ran the troubadour said, oh, I'll give you a ride home. And then it was like, oh, let's, I have to stop at my house first. And then it was like, next thing I knew, the guy had his thumb up my ass. So anyway, oh. so I'm like, and this guy's six That's foot six turn. and he's a karate guy. So anyway, oh, so basically that was really freaked out. It was, it was very freakish to get raped. And then, oh, so then, oh. the, then the dude... So then I go back and Joni Mitchell's playing at the Troubadour for the next week. I think it was her first thing. And they let me in free forever at the Troubadour after that. And all the uh, other guys uh, would look at me. They'd all, I was like, I turned into young meat. Anyway, oh, then dear. I got signed up by Warner Brothers and I started making record. And my producer was a raving junkie. <laughs> and I finally, I told Warner Brothers, I'm out of here. And I went back to Indiana and I walked on the record deal. Oh, wow. Wow. And one song, 145, is still out there to prove it. And you can find it on the huh, internet. Just because it was. And it's on, the no, it was, it's on the No Hit Wonders website, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you go back to New York. Oh, I went back to Indiana. Where I, oh, Indiana yeah. first. And yeah. then I st- was joined a band. Why? Why go back to Indiana? What's in Indiana? I don't know. It was just like Bloomington was a great place at that point in time. And a lot, I mean, right, it's so. a great, the music school was great. Uh, dozens of amazing musicians. Uh, you know, it was just, the scene was, it was good. And, uh, hey, Renee, Renee, didn't we have a former guest who was, who went to Indiana for music lesson for music? Mm, it uh, doesn't, that's very our, possible, but. Uh, what's his Arnie Scodge, uh, the Scandinavian guy. Um, well, I think maybe he went, actually, he, you're right. He, but he went to high school as an exchange student, uh, right. and he st- but he got into music there more than in, and then in, than in, he did say that, but I don't think he went to, uh, to school in Bloomington, but, oh, okay. uh, well. but yeah, Bloomington is a cool town. Actually. I played there a whole bunch of times. It's, it's one of those places that's on the, uh, the Midwest, uh, yeah. you know, rock and roll circuit, you Definitely know, yeah. the bluebird. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I joined this band, and the band, I just sort of fell in, and there was like a dozen people in the band, and they had a big house, that in the middle of town, and we lit, you know, and I crashed there, and I went there, and did this, do what you do, and you're an 18 year old hippie kid, you know, wandering around, and uh, and so then the lead singer in the band, joined up with Mike Brecker and his brother, who had been with us there, and when I started. I started as a freshman at the same time Michael Brecker did. And then Michael, they moved to New York and started this band called Dreams. And Mm. then Bob Lucas was the lead singer in the Screaming Gypsy Bandits, which was the Indiana band. He left. And so then then I was like, oh, I'll sing. So suddenly I was singing and this other, this woman, Caroline Payton, started singing. So we just kind of took over. And then I started writing tunes for it. And the next thing you know, we were playing and we that spring a spring of 1970 
we went and played at Yale for the Black Panther uh, when the head of Yale said no black person in America could get a fair trial. So we went and played that and we had, you know, stage blew up. The National Guard was there, got tear gas, oh, you know, the whole nine yards. And then, then we went. So nothing's changed. Yeah, nothing. No, I just, we, my generation failed. But of course, what you, what you have to take into account that we were up against the greatest terrorist organization in the history of the earth, the greatest organization for organized violence that has ever lived called the United States of America. So they were, and you can't legislate behavior. So, you know, all that shit just stayed there bubbling under all this time. And we thought it was going to change. You know, my high school, uh, the valedictorian was a black woman who went to Harvard and, you know, and we just thought everything was, oh, it's going to all fall in line. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, boy, were we wrong. Yeah. Well. Anyway, you know. uh, so Scream Jesse Bandits, and that that week was wild. That was the week of Kent State. Uh, we oh, played, Jesus. and then we played at Wesleyan. The Grateful Dead played. Uh, where else? Then we all went back. But in uh, that week, I went and stayed at William Styron's house, and my the lead singer in the band, Caroline here. Styron was her godfather. And then uh, Styron's daughter gave us LSD and we had a huge fight with him. And I started screaming at him and he had done that Confessions of Nate Turner and I started mocking him and, and he had a complete breakdown. And allegedly this is the start of <laughs> the whole William Styron depression. But, you know, oh, geez. that deep. Right. That's something to like, oh, that man. I've never if, been too proud you- of, but I thought is... Uh, you know, that's what happens when sometimes you go off on people. So, oh, so, yeah, you're you back, so you're back in New York and you're still, you're only just like 18, 19 years old. Well, I was in Indiana still. I'd been in, I was in Indiana oh, okay. till 75. And okay, I went okay, back, so. to, I went to New York quite a bit. Like I remember going to New Year's Eve, 1971 to 72 at the St. Mark's church was the acts were ultraviolet, Holy Model Rounders and Allen Ginsberg. And I nice, remember, and there nice. was nobody there hardly. There was like 75 people and all the Lou Reed and all the Velvet and the Warhol was there. And all it was, so it was like, that's how small that world was sort of pre Max's pre just, it wasn't really, it wasn't a big deal, you know? Right. And then it wow. blew up. Right. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, uh, well, Manny, you know, I, I want to hear this whole, I think we're perfectly teed up for this, uh, you know, uh, downtown New York uh, 1970 story, but but I'm going to need a drink to uh, to get through this. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's time for our break. Okay, so, let me go. Mark. I'll go take a piss. How's that? Yeah, there yeah, we yeah, go. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. And we'll cool. be back. So, Nation, uh, go get yourself a cocktail, take a piss. All right. We'll be right back. Hey. Hey. Um, so Sorry, it took so long. Uh, that's okay. I had to recline the mattress and then roll off the mattress uh, in order to get to the bar. Yeah, to make me a cocktail because my family doesn't want to help me. This is the best thing that ever happened to my wife and child. Is that you under the weather? Well, that me being bedridden, so they can just ignore me. Oh, Jesus! Just ignore me and. Uh, mm. um, so I, I I see my future. Okay. Well, I see um, my future. And we're back. 
Back with Mr. Manny Chevrolet. I am Renee Komen, back in our safe house with our guest, Mr. Mark Bingham. And uh, Mark, I don't know if you've, you're familiar with our, our, uh, our great sponsor, but we have a, a sponsor that's been associated with the show for a, a couple of months now. And uh, Manny, why don't you tell the nation about it? The nation well, knows, well, but tell Mark. Mark, uh, have you heard of the Velo Bar? The Velo Bar, Mark. The Velo Bar. It's a, it's a plant-based protein bar from healthy super food ingredients, pumpkin seeds, hemp hearts, and chia seeds, but it's, it's a CBD bar. I see. It's one of those. It's, it, it, it relieves stress. It tastes fucking great. It, uh, it has 12 milligrams of CBD per bar, a perfect dose that was 25, I think. 25. I think they upped it to yeah, 25. What did I say? What did I 12. say? 12. You said 12. Oh, yeah. 25. Uh, 25 is more oh. like it, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, 25. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, if you eat half a bar, it's 12. That's right. 12 and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I like to eat a little bit of the bar. Mm-hmm. I don't eat a whole bar. I, okay. I eat like, like if I go out and do some yard work, I'll eat a half a bar. Yeah. Work and stuff like that. Yeah, make it last. But, yeah, make it last. And, you know, this is a great product. And mm-hmm. if you go right now, Mark, if you go right now to velobarcbd.com and order some of these beautiful, tasty bars, chocolate and peanut butter flavor, and if you use a Troubled Men 1-5 promo code, you'll get 15% off your order and free shipping. Mm. Free shipping. Wow. Yeah. So, in fact, we had the, uh, the creator, the CEO, uh, uh, on the show of the Velo Bar. He was on the show a couple weeks ago. Yes. And it's, it, it was actually one of the most listened to shows I think we've had in a while. Okay. Because uh, 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 him being a businessman, he shared it to his uh, all sorts of uh, LinkedIn and Facebook and uh, uh, Instagram and uh, oh, porno sites. He, he stared right, at all right. that stuff. Yes, porn and, and it was one of the most listened to podcasts we've had in a while, Renee. And uh, it was okay. a good show. I finally listened to it a few days ago. Yes. It was a really good show. <laughs> yes. Uh, but was... listen, so Nation, you know what we're talking about. How much? Right. Bar. How, How much? much do we get off? 10%, you said? 15%. Oh, see, you get, yes. you get 10, and, 10 on the website. See, I'm looking at it. Man. Yeah, no. No, no, no but if use... you use our promo code, TroubledMen15, TroubledMen15, you'll get 15% off and free shipping, Mark. Okay. Free shipping. All right. It's nothing to That's sneeze good. at. Nothing to um, sneeze at. No. So, so nation, you know, the nation has been very supportive, continue to do that. And nation, if you want to, uh, support the Troubled Men podcast directly, you know, you can get on the show note link and, uh, and, uh, the Facebook page and contribute to the cocktail fund or, you know, general fund, uh, you know, buy us a cocktail, buy yourself one. So, uh, back to you, Mark. Okay. So, so the reason that the, uh, we want to, we want to, to backfill this whole thing, but the the thing that you've done most recently is you're affiliated with with uh, this band uh, Michaud's Melody Makers right. with uh, Louis Michaud from the Lost Bayou Ramblers. He's a former guest of ours, uh, and so you have a band with him, right? And you guys have a new record out, Cosmic Cajuns from Saturn. That's right. <laughs> 
Yes, I love the title. And that's a, a record that you guys, a uh, live record that you guys made at the Saturn Bar, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, that was it. Nice, and, uh, nice. We made it in December. And uh, we recorded it in December two nights and then listened to it for a month off and on and picked out the best stuff and put out a live record. Right Pretty on, simple. right on. Well, so... Yeah, sure. No, it's and it sounds terrific, man. I was listening to it today. It's 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 really great. You know, it's very psychedelic. I can tell that's a, a lot of your what you're contributing is the the psychedelic uh, trappings of the, of the, the whole psychedelic thing. guitar that everyone's been a you know avoiding for the last thirty years in New Orleans. But for some reason yeah. they like it in the, the country. You know, I used to, right, right. I used to play like that with like tribe nunzio go sit and feel like, what's that making that weird sound. You know, yeah. <laughs> so you know. So when you record a live album, uh, how much? Okay, so you record it; it's on tape. So how much do you go back into the studio and 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 tweak it? Is there are if it if it comes out good? Because I've always listened to live albums, and I think to myself, well, they had to go back to the studio to do some work on it. Well, you mix it, but we didn't. There were no overdubs or redos on this record. At all this is this is what it is. I mean. You know, it's a band that everybody knows how to play, and we start the songs, and the tempos are pretty much the same when we end them. And uh, right. you know, and uh, <laughs> I believe there was one one spot where there was a Brian Weber plays bass pads, like he's got a pad up there and his bass, and he's going back and forth. And at one point, oh. he missed coming back to the hit the tonic on the bass. And I put right. it on, and I took it from another spot and put it there, and that's that's the only fix on the entire record. Okay, all right, not bad. No, that's yeah. that's cool, man. Yeah, and it happened to be the very first note. It was like da 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 couldn't have a half step clam on the first, you know, band here. No, 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 no. Get off, get off on the wrong foot. Yeah, there. yeah. Um, but well, so, so, uh, you know, you were in your story of your chronology. You were just up to the seventies, and you were in your early twenties. We may have to uh, escalate or speed this up a little bit, but, but, but you were there in in you're saying the the pre CBG pre Max's scene. Oh, that and that must have been yeah, the, crazy. Yeah, band. that scene. Well, the dolls. I remember my Screaming Gypsy band has played with the dolls a few times, and okay. and the dolls didn't show up. Actually, we played three times. I think twice they didn't show up, which caused riots because it was usually like gay events, and so really all these like gay Halloween ball in somewhere in Detroit, and then the dolls don't show up. Oh boy, that was a happy crowd. Yeah, not a. Ha they didn't yeah. really want to hear us. You know, what I mean? you know, it's like being gotcha. an opening act for some big act. But sure, uh, sure. you know, I was just going in and out of New York, and we. I lived in Albany for a minute in 72. Uh, for, I don't know why we lived with the bioenergetics therapist in this big house. Yeah. And we rehearsed there for six weeks. I think we were kind of like wandering quite a bit at that point. And, yeah. um, and then, you know, by 75, I was kind of like, okay, Indiana had gotten kind of closed in, you know? Um, and the, our band toured and did this and that we come back and then there'd be the town and, you get older in a college town and you 
you're 25 or 26, you feel like an old person, you know? So, uh, so anyway, I thought, okay, New York. So I, we just, summer of 76, finally, I moved everything to New York, gave, I had a thousand pieces of vinyl, which I wish I still had today, but I didn't oh, bring them to God. New York with me, you know? And, uh, uh so you, you go to New York and punk rock explodes. Well, uh, yeah, but you know, disco, disco explodes, disco, too, right? the whole scene. It was just, it was wild. I mean, it was a great time to be in New York, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I got a loft downtown, which is still there. And there's still some studio there where we built one, but we had 9,000 square feet of space. Wow. And it was $600 a month uh. in 1977. And by 1979, that's, it, a, that's a lot though. It was up to $6,000 a month. You know what I mean? That's how fast. <laughs> and now it's at $30,000 for that floor for a month. Oh, oh my God. I, mean, I can't make this shit up. I mean, you know, right. it's like, that's how, I mean, there's 40 now, who knows what New York's going to be like, because I mean, Soho minus all the tourists is they're all, it's going down now. Woo. Yeah. But that's a whole nother story. So, but so 76, 1976, you're there disco punk rock and you're a musician. Are you, producing yet are you i kept i always kept producing records i didn't start being an engineer until 1987 oh okay i i uh i you know i would tell the engineer let's uh make all the tom toms and the cymbals to two tracks you know oh. i knew that much <laughs> yeah and okay so you're basically a musician, i was a musician so. and a ranger and a producer i would produce the stuff but you work with an engineer when you produce, you let the engineers got to bring something to the thing, you know. You right. don't necessarily tell them exactly what to do all the time because they often know more than yeah. you do. Sure, so, yeah, you know. yeah. It's always always nice to have somebody have a better idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank uh, God uh, somebody has an idea and it's, I like it better than mine. Yeah. So that <laughs> so uh, in New York, I started and I'll see what was I doing. I I produced some downtown jazz band called Fat Doggy, and then I. I can't remember what else. I had a started having. I started playing with uh, sitting in with this band called Theoretical Girls that had Glenn Branca in it, and then I started playing in Glenn Branca's smaller groups, and then I started this band with two basses, and we played our first gig at the Mud Club. And as a joke, we called the band the Social Climbers, which is the worst thing I ever did. I I, I really regret that I ever used that because then suddenly I was stuck with it and it was supposedly a bad joke. But anyway, so I, I started and then I met John Schofield at a gig and started working with him and I produced a couple of his records or co-produced. Right. And right. Uh, God, I can't remember. Well, then I met Hal Wilner during that time in 1980 and my ex-wife started working on Saturday Night Live and so that that was an access to a whole nother universe that I'd never been around. And right. You did wind up doing a few records, uh, with Hal, uh, <laughs> did like a, that record for, of, uh, music of Kurt Vile. Yeah. Kurt Vile and Disney and Monk. Right. I did a lot of stuff with Hal. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, over, I mean, it, it, the thing with Hal went on for 34 years off and on. And the stuff yeah. in the eighties was notable and, and, uh, Got a lot of attention, but there was a lot of stuff that didn't get much attention. 
I mean, right now I'm doing a sort of a Hal Memorial piece, which is this guy, Gregory Corso, the poet, and sure, sure. Marianne Faithful and Hal talking. Nice. And then they asked me to make this big sort of, uh, use the song I'll Be Seeing You, which was Hal's sort of favorite song, and that's how you'd always sign everything off. And uh-huh. so I got like Willie Schwartz, who lives in Germany now, to play accordion. Uh, I got Stephen Bernstein nice. in New York to do a brass choir of it. So, And then I made this sort of symphonic piece out of it using all kind of source material. And uh, and then it, it ends up with some like second lining out with it playing really fast on the piano. And oh, okay. So it's, wow, uh, sounds cool. I've been working on that for like the last two weeks. All right. It's pretty Well, that's it's good. You've epic. it's good to have nice, man. That sounds exciting. Man. Yeah, it's it was it's fun. Wow, terrific. It's good. So let me have... ask you, you're Go in New ahead. York seventies and eighties. You gotta have one good story about one rock star that you bumped into. Mm. Well, I've got it's so many be... stories from my the first thing yeah, I know. The but first thing that came to mind you... was John Cale coming over and we're playing, we're hanging out. And he starts drinking uh, wine. And this guy, Marty Thau, came over, who was the head of the record label that I was working for, Red Star Records. And Marty had been the manager of the Dolls, plus the manager of Melanie, like, you know, I got a brand new, you know, uh, that yes. Melanie. Sure. Uh, and uh, Marty had been a promo man for, Marty worked for Howard Levy, if you know the music business, you know, that's a scary thought. And so, uh, right. not Howard Lee. Is that his name? No, that's the harmonica player. What's the Eugene Levy? No, no, the other guy. What's the guy in New Jersey that was the horror, the heinous thief? Anyway, anyway, Marty been around, and anyway, Marty got some kid to come over and and bring stimulants. So then, uh, Kale's dead drunk, and he, and then he kind of staggers around, trips, and keels over and crashes into the radiator. So next thing you know, we've got John Cale passed out with blood coming out of his nose. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. (laughs) And then then he woke up and everything was fine. And we went next door to the mud club and life went on. (laughs) Okay. Because I lived a block from the mud club. So I could go to the mud club in my pajamas. So so you're there and, uh, you know, but you wind up in New Orleans uh, in the in the early 82 right? like Patty Patty's gig with SNL stopped. I was supposed to go to work for Sesame Street. She got a job on this new David Letterman show, believe it or not. And right as it started, NBC decided it was going to suck and they fired half the staff and they put the art director as the photographer. So, and I was like uh, do I want to write uh, these songs for you know? And so we were like, and then I started. Was it the, was it? Excuse me. Was it the Letterman Morning Show? No, it the was Letterman the first night? Letterman Late Night Show. It started in eighty oh, two. Okay. okay, yeah, because he had that morning no, show this for was, a while. No, and I remember Bob Pook from SNL took the gig that my wife was going to get. He took a lot of gigs, but because uh, he could do five things at once, and that's what they like to do. And you have to, I don't have to pay the other four people. And um, so uh, we said, fuck it. Let's go to New Orleans. I I wanted to do some writing, get out of New York. I was like, yeah, you know, I'd had New York is a struggle. Even, you know, it was great, but it's still a struggle. 
So, uh, so we moved to New Orleans and sublet the place and, and the studio loft downtown, I sublet to Philip Glass and his thing. So I could go back and forth and go there and work. And meanwhile, I just was in New Orleans. I moved uptown first and had a bicycle and roamed around. And that's when I met the Dirty Dozen right away. That was great. Yeah. Oh, nice. And, uh, nice. Yeah. That's when I found out what New Orleans politics was like, because somebody that was a very high up in the New Orleans music world didn't like me playing with those guys because it diluted their value. Really? Um, diluted my their value. Hmm. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, anyway, so... Uh, uh, so the, uh, yeah, so I basically never moved back to New York. I was back and forth through the entire run of the eighties, but, uh, got a place on, oh, meanwhile, my wife and I did a book. She did a photo book of science fiction writers. We traveled for a year doing that. And then I did kept going and working with Hal. So, you know, and what is your wife's name? Patty Perrette. All right, so she's written books. She yeah, works for us. She's uh, she lives on in the house formerly known as home on Gallier Street there, and uh, she uh, <laughs> she uh, is still working and she's great. You know, I mean, I had no problem with her. You know, just uh, yeah, yeah, we were yeah. married for nineteen years. I mean, Jesus. Nice. <laughs> well, so, but you you started a studio. Pretty soon after you're here, boiler room. Uh, oh, the boiler room that took that it going? took. The boiler room didn't start till 93. So I had a succession of small oh, okay. little places. And, uh, you know, and I started doing commercials, which was kind of horrifying. But uh, it was interesting that I could bring, go have a meeting and bring the music and present it. People go, hurrum, hurrum, hurrum. But if an agent went in and said, showed them all the stuff that I had done with people whose names they recognized, suddenly they loved my music. Yeah. <laughs> that's how that's how New Orleans was in those days with the ad business. It was like, oh, well, you did that, therefore you're good enough for us. But we can't tell right. what's good enough, but it must be good because they did it first. Right. It's that right, kind right. of shit. That's so funny. anyway, uh, and then, yeah, it took a while to get the boiler room and bike. Like in the 80s, I was traveling a lot and the Wilner in – 86 through 88, I was gone a lot. I remember when my, my son was born in 87, and I wasn't around much for the first two months of his life. You know? how, is, how is he now? He's good. He's, uh, he's got a place called Emmy Lou's Barbecue in St. Rock's Market, and he's, like, uh, he's, a good, he's good at barbecue. He won the Hogs for the Cause three years ago. You know what I mean? He's, really? Yeah, he's nice. like the bomb. So he... And he was like, we had a friend named John Morthland, who was a friend of John Swenson's from way back. And John Morthland was the barbecue judge of Texas. So my son started meeting all the cool barbecue people in Texas when he first started being interested in cooking. And then he went and cooked for the joint. And then he studied with Sue Zemanek. Then he did French stuff. And so he's actually legit, you know. And uh, but yeah. barbecue was his thing. And he got to actually learn from a lot of the the people that did it for real there in the, in Texas, in, you know, around Austin and Lockhart and all that. So what's going on with you now, man? Is it, from the nineties now to the two thousands, what's happening with you now? 
all that space. I don't know, man. Yeah. <laughs> the last I looked, I had I. Well, because I know I know you went to rehab at least three times between the nineties and today. No, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> I tried to go to rehab, and they were and, and basically they were setting me up. And when they figured out that I didn't have insurance, I was miraculously uh, cured. They gave me like two clonopin and a pat on the back. You know. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and so no, I or a clonopin patch on the yeah, back. Yeah, I never really. Yeah. I was never really bad. Now, Wilner, my you know partner there, he went to rehab a couple of times, and he was so bad he was living in the. Uh, oh, I don't even want to get into it, but you know, it yeah, was like yeah, yeah. too brutal. But he he got better sure. the last twenty years of his life. He was totally, you know, sober and the whole deal. And, right. But the ira- the yeah. irony is that he died getting the coronavirus, getting COVID at an NA meeting. Mm, oh, so geez. you know, there you go. Oh, <laughs> Everybody's God, tough, everybody man. at the NA meeting tough. got sick. Oh, God, oh it's terrible. one day at a time, yeah, baby. baby. <laughs> one day at a time. It's one day at a time. So let me ask you: You've been in the music business, entertainment business, your whole life. What do you think of uh, rock and roll music today? Well. Does it even exist? Everything, anymore? everything is so airsats at this point in time that there, it's like hard to find anything that's very real or original. There's only so many chords, and there's only so many tempos, and there's only so many melodies, and it's hard to find. I mean, you know, what do I? Do? I'm gonna listen. I'm gonna go to the Joyful Noise and and get the new Daniel Johnston record. You know, that's what I'm gonna listen to. You know, because or I'm going to go back and listen to Trout Mask Replica again. But as far as what I hear, I listen constantly. I listen to music from Nigeria and Cameroon. I listen to music from all over the world. But I rarely listen to any American rock and roll because I largely don't get it. And sometimes, like, say, in New Orleans, I'll listen to Julie O'Dell because she writes amazing songs, and it's different. It's just her, and I get it. But so much stuff I hear is just like, what? Well, that's that. That's that. And that's, and so it's hard. And I try to be helpful and supportive. But in a large, big picture thing, it's kind of like, you know, what's there to do? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm always, I'm always hopeful because I think every decade or every, you know, 15 years, there's always some genius coming out of like Seattle or Indiana that, that gets rock and roll again and, and, and does it a new way where we're like, this is fucking good. Well, this is fucking I, you good. know, I don't know. I hear stuff, but now, you know, we're not going to have any gigs for two years if we ever do again. So, you know, right. There's oh, another thing. And, and most people, the real creative people, like, say, you know, started making tracks, not playing guitars. And, you know, and yeah. that's a one big factor. Like, say, how, you know, New Orleans hip-hop was so huge because the track makers came out of the churches and came out of keyboard playing and organ, and they knew how to play real good and knew how to make groovy, groovy stuff. And so that put them way ahead of the people that were stealing samples and rapping against that. And so that's an example of what you're talking about, where somebody breaks the mold, the Holly Grove mode, you know? And, uh, and so, yeah, you can find things, but, you know, 
I remember when we started tuning those guitars funny and with Glenn Branca and made this huge thing. And then Thurston and Lee and Kim and them ran with that and made 18 albums, you know, with Sonic Youth. And, you right, know, but, yeah. and, and so a lot of times, you know, the early bird gets the worm, but it's the second mouse that gets the cheese, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, to be innovative is not necessarily a good thing half the time in this business because somebody's going to grab it and roll with it and have, and, you know, here, I'm 71. I never had a manager, never had an agent, never had a website. I just roll from one thing to the next and try to help people do their work and do my shit. And, you know, so I, what I know about the music business, you can write on the back of a napkin. <laughs> Well, you should write a book of, uh, on a napkin. Yeah, I well, you know, you think about this. This, uh, you know, that joke about the airplane crashes and there's this field full of broken airplanes and broken people, and and the crews rush to the scene, and there's one dude sitting there at his briefcase, and the film crews, the TV people come in and say, "Oh my God, we're here with the lucky." This is. Uh, Don Caldwell, he's the luckiest man in the world, you know. And Don Caldwell yeah. says, me? No, Mark Bingham, he's the luckiest man in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, because what the fuck do I know how to do? And, you know, that joke, it used to be they'd put in uh, Clarence Clemens, you know, because all he did was go, that used to be, you could plug in any number of names in that, you know. Right. You know. Well, listen, Mark, you know who would have been 75 years old today? Or hmm. I think this month or next month is uh, Mr. Bob Marley. Oh, right. You know, speaking of, you know, music and stuff that influences you and stuff like that, uh, he, he would have been 75 this year. Wow. And I was talking to my wife and her older sister and husband, um, we're supposed to see Bob Marley back in the 70s. Um, but at uh, the warehouse, was that the, is that the place, Renee? Uh, the yeah, warehouse? yeah, yeah, the warehouse yeah, at yeah, Chapatulas. Yeah, yeah. and uh, they, they went to the gig, they had tickets, and there was a big sign on the, on, on the, mar uh, on the front door of the ticket booth saying that Mar Bob Marley got shot. So there would be no concert in New Orleans at the warehouse. And then, of course, uh, a few months later, you know, he refused. He had cancer of the toes. Right. And he refused to have his toes cut off because he liked playing soccer so much. Hmm. And um, I did. the doctor, uh, doctor said, told him, said, listen, if you want to live, we've got to cut, like, your toes off. And he said, no, I love soccer. You're not cutting my toes off. And then he died, like, a few months later. Weird, I didn't know that wow. was what the deal was. Mm -hmm. Lord. And with that, I'd like to bring another downer to the end of the show. <laughs> okay, Manny. <laughs> well, that was perfectly I, played. I, 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 was more, uh, I was more of a Jacob Miller fan anyway. <laughs> no. I, I, I was going to turn it to... Uh, 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 nouveau electric records okay. and, uh, and you know, what, what, uh, the great, uh, Louis Michaud is doing over there. These, his whole series of records he's releasing this being one of them, you know, I, he, 
I, I really like his energy, his uh, work ethic. He, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I went over yesterday and he was, uh, he's got an island on his little property and he was cutting the grass. He was out in this big ass machine cutting this high grass and he had, he built his, he built a pool for his kids that natural water. Anyway, he, yeah, he's uh, capable of many things. <laughs> he actually planted all the, ba- he came over when I first met him and hardly knew him. Uh, he, I was going to plant bamboo and he said, Oh, I'll bring my thing. And he came over with this truck with this big thing on the back with a drill, this giant drill bit. <laughs> and he, he dug all the holes. So it's like Louis Michaud yes. and Sean Hall out there planting bamboo. It was, it was wow, quite talk a, about handy around the house. Yeah, it was quite a beautiful uh, yeah. sight. And uh, and then and then I and then I just I gave him like a Neve uh, direct box as a gift for doing that because he didn't want to take any money. And so we had a relationship to begin with that was sort of like, oh well, thank you. You're just like real regular, and we're this is what we're doing. And I think the label is kind of like that. He's trying to keep the. It's kind of keep the French thing going and keep the weirdo thing going, you know? Yes, yes, it's very cool. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Like Manny said, we'll definitely have to have you back and you could, you know, get into the 90s and the, 90s. <laughs> and the aughts. And, and uh, I don't know, Manny, final thoughts, words? Uh, final thoughts is I'm still in pain. As we Jesus, speak. you've been such a champ. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I do what I could do, but but Mark, yeah. uh, thank you for being on the show and putting up with me. Uh, and uh, uh, Renee, uh, you know, I I'll see you later. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as we always say on the on, on the Troubled Men podcast, what do we say? Say uh, trouble never ends, but the struggle continues. Good night, nation. Good night.
dedicate that song to Uncle Bobby as well. He brought that to us. Showed us that song all the way from Breton. Y'all, 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 y'all